This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 22, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. The president's speech yesterday was not aimed at bringing people together. It was instead a full-throated defense of a large, expansive federal government. David Bowes, executive vice president of the Cato Institute, evaluates the president's second inaugural address. A lot of the commentators that I read following the president's second inaugural said the president made a vigorous defense of the role of government. Well, he didn't make a vigorous defense of the role of government uh, so much as a particular view of what is the proper role of government. Well, that's right. It was a vigorous defense of a vigorous and uh, expansive concept of the role of government. And in that sense, I mean, the commenters are right. It was a very ideological speech. It was a real pounding away at themes that are sort of the opposite of Ronald Reagan's 1981 inaugural. He is, in effect, dismissing the whole idea of limited government, of the market process, of the idea that the United States has become rich and prosperous and abundant for more people than anybody in history through the market process. In his conception of history and of government, there's only we, one nation, doing things collectively. Now, when I spoke with uh, with Aaron Powell, editor of libertarianism.org, about a similar speech that the president gave, which was effectively a campaign speech in Roanoke, he sort of equated government with coordination. That is, he said something to the effect of, well, could you imagine if we all had our own individual fire service? Of course, nothing would get done there. This is a very basic level of coordination. And he seems to have continued that uh, sort of celebration, celebrating the vindication of a view of government as the legitimate expression of uh, commitments that we make to one another. Well, that's right. And he has a couple of offhand references early in the speech to, sure, we're skeptical of central authority and we believe in free enterprise, but then he's off to the races and it's all about we. And he does say nobody individually can build all the research labs and roads and and businesses that we need to make this country great. Well, that's right. You or I couldn't individually build all the research labs we need to make this country great. But Henry Ford built one once and then he persuaded people to invest money in it and make it bigger. And in our own time, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg all created their own research labs and then found people to voluntarily put money into it. And there's plenty of failures in the private sector and there surely are some successes in the public sector. But you've got to think that Apple Computer is sort of a symbol of the private sector and Solyndra is the uh, symbol of public sector investing. If we follow the president's plan, we will get lots of Solyndras. Or maybe a better example is we will get lots of Minitels. And you're probably too young even to remember Minitel, but 20, 25 years ago, we were all being told, look, France is so far ahead of us on computers. They have this Minitel system that unites everyone. And you can like order airline tickets over this Minitel. And it was a government-created kind of quasi-internet. And five years after we're being hit over the head about how we're so backward and individualist and capitalist that we don't have this, 
we've got the internet and France has still got Minitel. And it was clearly a detour, a wrong direction for technology. And it's because the government puts all its eggs in one basket instead of having the competitive system of 300 million Americans investing their own minds and their own money into competitive products. Now, the president started his uh, second inaugural with words from the birth certificate of the United States, the Declaration of Independence, specifically sort of the nut graph of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and then said we be- we continue this struggle to bridge, as uh, to, according to his words, to bridge the meaning of those words with the realities of our time, and then goes a completely different direction and really attempts to make, I think, no uh, meaningful connection between those words and the sort of semi-concrete policy proposals that that he likes. Well, he's doing a couple of things here, and to some extent, it's a sleight of hand. Later in the speech, he has a paragraph where he refers to the triumphs of Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall. And each of those celebrates the lifting of the burden of government off of women, of black people, of gay people, bringing those people into the mainstream of economic and political society. And those were triumphs for the Declaration of Independence. They are, in a sense, triumphs of liberalism, both classical and modern. But they are, in fact, lifting government off the backs of people. And then, in this sort of sleight of hand, he tries to appropriate that heritage that does run from the Declaration of Independence to Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall and turn it into a mandate for positive, vigorous, expansive government. And that's what I think, that's the connection you can't make. There's no reason to think that because government stopped oppressing women and then black people and then gay people, that therefore the government should raise taxes and do all the investing in society. Well, he also makes reference to ending the wars. That's which, right. Which, he's, of course, only, only governments that, can do. Yeah, we'll do something progressive. We will not live in a world of perpetual war. Well, you couldn't tell it by his first four years. One of the most pressing issues faced by the United States is, of course, the burden of government debt and spending. And he made one sort of brief reference to that. But pretty much the rest of his talk was about what government has done and can do for you. Yes, the best defense of that would be to say that the inaugural speech is a broad vision and the State of the Union speech will be the laying out of the agenda for the next four years. I don't think we're going to hear an agenda for controlling federal spending in the State of the Union speech, but at least theoretically, uh, you might get that. He does talk about the deficit. And notice he wants to talk about the deficit, not the size of government or the rapid increase in federal spending. Because if you talk about the deficit, then you have an argument for raising taxes. And that's what he wants to do. Now, he already got a tax increase without any spending cuts. You would think the next bill would be spending cuts without a tax increase. But clearly, he's trying to rally what he thinks is the 51 or even 60 percent of the country that is indifferent to 
the constraints in the Constitution and the risks of excessive federal spending, and he wants to rally them and focus them on Congress to increase spending in every area from Social Security and Medicare to child care tax credits to infant mortality programs to investments in green energy and modern technology and also investments in whatever other businesses have clout in Washington. The president sometimes criticized for using the word I in his speeches a lot. Well, this speech was all we. It's we, we, we. We must. We as a nation must meet the challenges. We can't do anything individually. And this is a very collectivist, at best communitarian, view of the world. He just doesn't recognize that from the cotton gin to the train to the skyscraper to the automobile to the personal computer, all the things that have revolutionized our lives have come from individual initiative and private enterprise, and he just doesn't seem to recognize that as part of our history. You know, my friend Jeff Friedman, who edits Critical Review, said... This speech should be inspiring to political theorists who wonder if they ever have any influence because he sat in classrooms in Columbia University and he heard about collective action and social justice and the perils of atomistic individualism and 30 years later, that is the inaugural address he gives to the nation. This is a distillation of the collectivist worldview that you do get in a lot of elite universities, but it is not the view that is rooted in the principles of the founders or the real meaning of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when he refers to commitments we make to each other, he's specifically referring to Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. And he said, these these programs don't sap our initiative. They strengthen us to take bigger risks, to take risks. And one has to wonder what he means by us and risks. The philosophical argument he's trying to make there is that you're more likely to quit your job and start a company if you don't have to worry about health insurance and so on. Of course, there's a robust private market for private health insurance. And there would be a more robust one if we didn't have so much government intervention that government is already paying for about half of health care. So there's no reason that entrepreneurs can't get private health insurance if that's the thing that is preventing them. But there's also high taxes and massive regulations and regulations have been significantly increased and all of those things are preventing people from taking the risks that might lead us to the next automobile or personal computer. David Bose is the executive vice president of the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at cato.org.